This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the highly ruminative Sir Simon Belanger. How are you doing, my friend? Um, I just booked a flight to Omaha for the Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway extravaganza. I can't wait to see uh, Charlie Munger's face. And uh, I want you, you got to come with me next year if it's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it's, it's good and I'm just crossing my fingers. They'll be with us for another year because at this point, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, they're not uh, young whippersnappers anymore, but... <laughs> they're not getting any younger. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be so interesting for you to see the dynamic between Munger and Buffett because Buffett is usually way more politically correct where Charlie has no filter whatsoever and he's more than happy to, you know tell you exactly how he thinks uh re- whether you know he hurts your feelings or, or not he doesn't care <laughs> he doesn't care and he's always been like that but when you're 99 you're just gonna be more of that like the, the amount of f's you have throughout your lifetime they're all used up you just got none left uh so next year dude that would be incredible because he would literally be 100 years old yeah which is nuts. To book it this year uh, hopefully. for next year. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hopefully. Anyways, um, so I'm officially headed to o- Omaha for Berkshire AGM this year. It's going to be, I'm going to have so much content for the podcast. Um, maybe we should do like a live episode, like maybe the morning before I go or something. I don't know. Just, just spit on ideas. Um, and I've been kind of meaning to go, but never committed to going to do it. I mean, this is like you have all the sweaty financial nerds in one place for a weekend and, uh, I couldn't be more pumped. So, uh, yep, all, all booked up. Now on that same note, my first segment of the podcast today is I'm kicking us off with lessons from Warren's 2022 letter to shareholders because it came out last Saturday and it might be my favorite letter in a while. Like it's been my, it is my, I, for some reason it just stood out and I talked to a couple of other shareholders um, who are like, you know, big Buffett fans and they all said something similar. Like this one, it just seemed like he zoomed out so much and not was in, not in the weeds of the business and just zoomed out so much, very philosophical. Um, and, as always, lots of tidbits on how to how to be a great investor. And so I have four lessons here. Uh, we can go through them one by one. Lesson number one from his letter, and again, these are just my, uh, my takeaways and interpretations of the words, uh, the buff dog words, and you can leverage them in any way you can for your own framework. Lesson number one, Simone, you get the outcomes you attract on a long enough time horizon. Again, you get the outcome you attract on a long enough horizon. He starts with a, a paragraph as per usual in the beginning of his letters on him and Charlie's why, like why they do this, why they care, why they still do this, why they get up every morning and are so excited to do this job for their shareholders. And this whole segment for me felt a lot like 
you deserve the shareholders that you attract. And managers who act with lacking integrity typically get the shareholders who do too. Uh, the shareholders who are just looking for a quick buck are attracted to managers who typically act with short-term thinking and lacking integrity versus long-term investors looking for good stewards of permanent capital who can operate with integrity. Come on over to Berkshire. You know, that's basically what he's saying. And he ended this section with the quote, who wouldn't enjoy working for shareholders like ours? End quote. That's how he ended this 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 first page, and um, so yeah, you get the outcomes you attract on a long enough time horizon. What are your thoughts? No, I think I'm a big believer in that. Uh, just generally in life, right? You, if you work hard, you treat people well. Usually, things you know, you get rewarded. You might not feel like it in the short term, but long term, yeah. uh, you'll get rewarded if you're, uh, you know, a a not good person to not swear. Uh, I could use other terms uh, for. Well, I'll try to keep it friendly. But if you're, you know, you're a a hold to anyone or like pretty much everyone, I mean, it's gonna come back and bite you. It may you, you may profit from it on your daily lives in the short term, but longer term, things kind of have a way to to come around. Yeah, people do life with and do business with people they trust and like. Number two, great advice typically doesn't change with the seasons. Um, you know, it's like the content creators and just advice generally about not, not like investment advice, just like life advice. It, it sounds less smart if you just keep saying it. So people feel like they always need to come up with new new tidbits, new motivations to feed their audience. And the reality is, is that great advice is usually evergreen. Like it doesn't change with the seasons. It doesn't change with what's hot. And this section of, of Buffett's letter, the second section was, what we do and why, owning both private and, uh, both private and pieces of publicly traded companies at the end of the day. Um, he says, the same things 50 years ago as he says in 2023, which is act like a business owner, not a trader. And he has been consistent about saying this exact same thing and same pieces of wisdom, same tidbits for decades. It's nothing new. Like he doesn't come up with anything that's like radically different than he's been preaching for 50 years. And it sounds like a negative, but it's actually such a positive that the same sound wisdom doesn't change with what's hot and what's not. Quote, Charlie and I are not stock pickers. We are business pickers. Said that a million times. Another quote, one advantage of our publicly traded segment is that episodically, it becomes easy to buy pieces of wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. It's crucial to understand that stocks often trade at foolish prices both high and low. Efficient markets only exist in textbooks. In truth, marketable stocks and bonds are baffling. Their behavior usually understandable only in retrospect. So basically saying the fact that the idea that stocks trade at efficient prices is is just a concept in a textbook. It, it is not real. Um, and that is one of your advantages. 
Yeah, and the retrospect is really interesting because if we go back uh, just, you know, year and a half ago, two years ago, 2020 uh, 2020 and 2021, I mean, now in retrospect, I mean, low interest rate, tons of money in the economy, government stimulus, left, right and center, no matter what country we're looking at, people not being able to spend on a bunch of different things. So kind of focusing their spending on certain type of goods or investing that money. The result, asset prices become extremely inflated, especially those riskier assets. And now it's much easier in retrospect to be like, okay, that was that was pretty obvious, right? You know, money was mm-hmm. cheap. There was tons of liquidity. Now interest rates are going up. Uh, liquidity is tightened up in the market. Makes a bit more sense why we're not seeing those multiples. I mean, I think it's it's just a great quote. I know I've learned lessons. Um, clearly, we are good at you know, making sure we don't put too much of an allocation on things that are riskier. And I think that's a big one, big part that we did not get wrecked, right? For the most part, you know, we took, you know, didn't have a great year last year, like most people, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you allocate and you kind of judge your, or you mitigate your risk that way. But I definitely learned one thing is that um, I have to be more careful of making sure even businesses that are growing quickly, that I actually pay a reasonable price for them. Yeah. Not overpaying is such a, such a skill, but, um, just needs to be emphasized. And this leads so well into lesson number three, which is literally mistakes are going to happen. That's, that's lesson number three. Look, they're going to happen. I've made some, you've made some, we've all made some. And if you haven't yet, keep doing this because it will happen. <laughs> like, and that's okay. Cause you're going to do it for a long time. And as a result, crush it, get wonderful long-term, long-term wealth generation with compounding returns, but sprinkled in that with a couple of not ideal outcomes, and that is okay. Quote, along the way, other businesses in which I have invested have died, their products unwanted by the public. Capitalism has two sides. The system creates an ever-growing pile of losers while concurrently delivering a gusher of improved goods and services. Schumpeter, (laughs) who is that, Uh, called this phenomenon, quote, creative destruction. And so he, he called out literally examples, companies that have been huge flops and companies that have been gigantic winners like Coca-Cola and American Express and owning massive positions in those businesses, they just had to do a couple things right and they did many wrong, but they just had to do a couple things right. Um, and, And this happens so often. Yeah, and if you haven't made a mistakes either, you haven't been investing for a very long time, or you're lying to yourself. Um, that's on. That's my honest opinion. I mean, I've made mistakes, um, and I think whether it's in life, you know, or investing, and the way I try to approach is just learning from them. I just talked about it. Um, some companies I clearly overpaid for them, and you know, I'm probably gonna overpay for some businesses in the future, but I'll try to learn what I did learn. Um, the last couple of years and, you know, minimize the overpayment, I think, because, uh, you know, you just have to learn from it. They're just learning opportunities. That's how I see it. 
Yeah, and I know you and I, for the first like year or two of this pod, I didn't have, I felt like a fraud. I was like, I don't want to have that many like bad mistakes to report to. And that's because I, I indexed for so long. Like it's pretty, it's the beauty of indexing. Like it's pretty hard to go wrong if you just DCA. And, and maybe that's another learning in itself right there that, you know, a lot of people should probably just be in the index. Lesson four, winners win. Tangentially related to lesson three. And they all flow together as they should, like any good le- letter from Warren Buffett. Now, return decomposition for many portfolios, it tends to be where a significant amount of outperformance comes from just a few select great ideas, like like Buffett's example of Coke and American Express, where the investor had the right thesis at the right time and the right conviction. I think I'd double click on that, the right conviction to hold it for a really long time um, because every great winner is going to have drawdowns. Uh, I mean, like how many times did... Amazon lose half its value since you know it went public. I don't know, but a lot. Yeah, quite a few times. A bunch. So you've had to have the right conviction on the on the thesis as well. I think that that's really important. Um, And the reality is that this is very common that you have like these outsized returns from just a few winners. Return decomposition is usually placed that way, and Buffett points it out here as well. Quote, the lesson for investors, the weeds wither away in any significance as the flowers bloom. Over time, it just takes a few winners to work wonders. And yes, it helps to start early and live into your 90s as well. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is my favorite quote of the entire uh, letter. The weeds wither away in significance as the flowers bloom. Uh, And then... Yeah, it helps to start early and live into your 90s. doesn't hurt. Uh, it's just so wonderful. It's so him. Uh, and, and the man still has such a way with words. Yeah, no, that's always uh, a great letter to to read. I haven't had the chance just yet, so this is a little preview for me, but I'm excited to... It's really short. Yeah, I'm excited it's to five read. five pages. Oh, nice. Okay. It's short. Yeah, so I, yeah it's really short. Probably will read that uh, either today or tomorrow. Now we'll move on to a different kind of thing. We haven't really talked about that. Um, it's a bit more macro, but it can apply, like impact your daily lives as well. So I figured I'd touch on that a bit more. So what the bond market can tell you about interest rates and what you know the bond market actually thinks where they'll be going. Um, you know, forgetting what actually central bankers are telling you about interest rates. It's it's always a good thing to look at. So first of all, just a quick primer in terms of government bonds. So whether it's Canadian government bonds or U.S. Treasuries, clearly the U.S. Treasury market is the most important. Governments issue bonds to cover their expenses. When the bonds come to maturity, they won't repay those back because they just can't repay the entirety of them back. They'll typically just roll them over. And that's because, for example, in Canada, the current federal government debt is around $1.5 trillion, much higher if you include the provinces. Uh, so I don't have the figure here. But for twenty for the 2021-2022 fiscal year, the government reported revenues of a bit more than $400 billion. So clearly, you know, these are just the revenues. You have a debt of $1.5 trillion, So clearly, uh, they have to roll these bonds over. So as they roll them over with higher interest, uh, interest costs actually rise. Now, I won't go into too much detail here because I could probably do a whole episode on that. That's not the point. Um, 
rising rates could eventually impact the ability of government to spend as a larger part of its expenses are allocated to pay interest debt. Um, that's something, like I said, I can dive into another time because it would be way too long. Now, when you look at government bonds, you really have to look at it from a duration standpoint because it'll tell you different things. So typically, shorter the duration, the lower the yield will be. That's because when you invest in longer duration bonds, you want to get compensated for the fact that there is more uncertainty and potential for interest rates to go up, therefore having a bigger effect on bonds that have a longer duration. That's also because the time frame for longer bonds, there's longer for maturity. So the more there will be so that means there will be more interest payments remaining on that bond. So in turn, it will depress the market value of the existing bond. So when interest rates rise, existing bonds tend to go down. The longer the duration, the more impacted they will be. Now, in terms, I pulled three charts. I know you can see them. Um, they're showing interest rates for Government of Canada bonds for bonds for one year, two year, five years. And what you see in those charts is actually pretty simple and also quite interesting. I'll explain it pretty easily to people. So the one year, uh, there are some shorter duration, but the one year is a smoothish, smoothish slow climb to the right, almost in lockstep with the Bank of Canada increases with not many bumps and currently sits at 4.66%. The two year has a bit more bumps and is currently sitting at 4.2%. And the five year is a lot more volatile and is sitting at 3.5%. And the US five year bond is yielding 4.17 for additional context here. Um, anything you want to say on that before I finish up here? No, I'm in... Uh... I'm in complete learning mode right now. This is good. Yeah. So now let's focus on the five-year bond yield because it will impact some things in your daily lives that people may actually not realize that it's impacting. First thing that we're seeing here is that the yield is lower for the longer duration than the shorter duration, which is not typical. That's what they'll refer to the yield curve inversion. And we're still seeing that right now. Second, we're seeing the five-year bond yield bottom around. We saw the Canadian yield bottom around end of January below 3%. I think it was around 2.8%. And now sits at 3.5%. And that's despite the Bank of Canada saying they would pause rates this year. Now, the market is essentially saying that they think rates will need to stay higher longer. So that's what the bond market is telling you here. Now, there's other... That one-year chart looks like a really nice stock to own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the six months is actually even smoother, but the one year, and you can pull that really easily if people just Google it. It's very easy to look at it. Um, now, there's other reasons why longer-term bond rates can go higher, but I won't go over that for this segment because, you know, that would probably take a whole episode in itself as well. Now, the last thing here, the fact that the U.S. Treasury for the same duration is yielding more than 60 basis points than the Canadian one is likely to keep putting pressure on the Canadian dollars because it makes the five-year U.S. Treasury more attractive to investors. Even if the rates were the same, there would be more demand for U.S. Treasuries because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. So <clears throat> that's where the, you know, the Bank of Canada is kind of in a difficult spot right now. Now, why should you care about this? Well, 
Government bonds are typically seen as, air quotes, risk-free alternative to investments. And the reason I said air quotes is because there's nothing that's really risk-free. And yes, it's backed by the governments, but governments can default on their debt, however unlikely that may appear to be right now. And let's say you're one of the big Canadian banks. The five-year bond will actually be one of the big determining factors influencing the rate that you're willing to loan for a five-year fixed mortgage. That's because the bank can always put that money into that government bond that they consider risk-free. And it may decide to underwrite you a mortgage, but it's going to look at the five-year bond first and then add a risk premium to that and offer you that five-year mortgage. And a lot of people don't realize that that's actually how it's calculated. Obviously, you know, it may be a bit higher for you compared to your neighbor, depending on a bunch of different factors. But that's also why we don't have 30 years mortgage in Canada and the U.S. has them. So it's in relation to those government bonds. And as a stock investor, it also impacts you in a few important ways. The higher the longer terms rates are, the more money will go towards them and away from stocks. It can make some type of stocks more attractively priced or depressed. It can be a great opportunity to buy wonderful businesses like we just talked about with, uh, you know, referencing Warren Buffett, Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway. Assuming that you have a long enough time horizon because if those rates keep trending higher, there's really a good probability that short-term pain will continue into the medium term. And it means that if you're not finding any attractive opportunities for the time being, you can actually park your money and get a decent yield in return. Will you actually be a net positive compared to inflation? That's debatable, but um, it does impact investing as well. And I wanted to, something we don't really talk about a lot, but uh Bond, the bond market is actually a good indicator as where the market thinks rates will be going and all the ripple effects it can have as well. Yeah, it's it's such a like derivative of forward rate predictions, and it has never once been understandable for me. It's so like I just. People who do this all day, I, I don't like, what are they, how do they have any sort of conviction? It's so wild to me. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, and the bond market usually will be better than the stock market. I kind of predicting the outcome. But again, you can see those yeah. variants. I just talked about within a month, the five year change, like pretty significantly in Canada. So that's the bond market saying, in part, they're thinking, look, Okay, um, the economy is still pretty strong. The job numbers are pretty strong. We actually think inflation might be more, you know, present than the Bank of Canada is actually projecting. So they think that they may be, they may be kind of stuck in this pattern to have to stick to higher rates longer if they really want to get a hold in inflation. In a nutshell, that's what the bond market is currently telling us right now. People who work in credit are so smart, like on a professional scale. Oh yeah. It mm. is unbelievable how like how smart some of the people who work in credit are. And uh I I they are way yeah. smarter than I'll ever be. And uh you've just done a breakdown that is super helpful for people and super helpful for me. And I just like, scratched the surface too, right? I think Yeah, this is just <laughs> the surface, but the surface is helpful. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Right? 
No, it's good to just understand, even if you don't care about most of what I said, but you're looking to buy a house, you may be wondering why the five-year fixed rate is hovering up and down despite the Bank of Canada right. not changing rates. This is not the reason. Not changing any rates. Exactly. Yes. That's just it, right? Yeah. And, and most people, it's just some floating number that no, exactly. really never has any sort of rationale. There is some complex stuff happening in credit that that derives at that number. But again, no matter what expectations are gone for forward, the reality is this rate has moved from basically zero to you know something significant in a short period of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not to get political, but the way the government actually manages their finances has an impact on that too. We saw what happened with the guilt with is the British bond when um, Liz Truss, I think was saying she would be cutting taxes, increasing spending, and all these things. And the market said, okay, they called BS. Basically, they said, okay, well, we don't think the UK is going to do a good job at repaying their bonds back. So the yield shot up. The price of UK bonds completely crashed. And then the Bank of England had to intervene, and they have a new prime minister now. So... You know, it's something, you know, we don't get into politics, but that's just to give you an idea of, yes, the decisions governments take actually can have a pretty significant impact on the bond market. Let's take a look at the great, the late great John Bogle. I guess I decided to do two investing legends here for my two segments on the pod here. Um, John Bogle or most often referred to as Jack Bogle. I'll interchange them. You know, like my buddy Jack Bogle. I'm saying it like me and him were like buddies or something. Um, this man lived a fascinating life. He did a lot for the individual DIY investor. A lot might be the understatement of the year. And that's why he deserves a segment on the podcast here. Jack Bogle passed away in 2019 at the age of 89. And his life was prolific um, in many ways. And there's still tons of interviews on YouTube. If you ever want to hear him talk, if you've never heard him talk, he does lots it, well into his late 80s, still sharp as a tack uh, right up until then. And not many maybe new to the investing world, you might not be familiar with Mr. Bogle, but you will probably be very familiar with at least Vanguard. And Vanguard is the company he founded and ran and got kicked off at one point, like, like any good entrepreneurial story that grows into a billion dollar company, ousted from the board or whatever it was. And Vanguard has been a gigantic disruptor in the financial industry turning the mutual fund business upside down. Um, and this was this was all from, from Jack Bogle in his career. He brought in passive index investing to the mainstream, and, and he invented it, really, with the main effort of bringing costs down and performance up for the individual investor. Very mission-driven on this individual investor – I can't make you get great returns, but I can make you have low fees. And so if I can really focus on that, then we'll be getting somewhere here. And that's what he's been relentlessly pursuing 
during his whole career. And Jack Bogle became known as the father of index investing. Today, Vanguard has over 7 trillion assets under management, and the growth in fund flows has been stupid consistent during all types of markets. Today, Vanguard and BlackRock both own around 7 to 8% of almost like most public companies, which is kind of nuts. Jack had a real disdain for mutual fund fees, like aggressive. And there are some stories, Simone, and this just kills me. He would get invited to these financial conferences and he was a big shot, right? He's a billionaire, like, you know, managing hundreds of billions at the time, which ended up becoming trillions assets under management. So he's a big shot. He can go on any stage he wants in the financial world. He would get invited to like active management fund, like conferences and go up there on stage and shit on their business. Like (laughs) no, no problem. Um, I don't know why he kept getting invited to these events. Uh, He had no time for the mutual fund business, not only because he was building a disruptor, but he was baffled. And what originally sent him on this mission is after doing some work, seeing that after fees, they had historically poor performance compared to the benchmark. And in 1976, Bogle introduced the Vanguard 500. It tracks the returns of the S&P 500 and marked the first index fund marketed to retail investors. And this was very significant. Now they own, you know, like I said, single digit percentage of most public companies, similar to BlackRock's ETF businesses. These two are the heavyweight titans in index ETFs, even though the original index fund was actually structured like a super, super low cost index mutual fund, but not an active mutual fund, not to be confused. It's an index fund, but it was not structured like an exchange traded fund. I don't want to confuse no, people, no. so I'll stop. Saying I mean, that. you can get mutual funds that are really low fees. They're essentially you can. They're index yeah. mutual funds. Like it, it does exist. Like it's not uh, just people are not that, as. That's familiar. what the original yeah. index fund was. Yeah. They're just not traded on the stock market like an ETF. That's it. Because they're traded like a mutual. Yeah. Fund. Right. Exactly. His disdain was against the structure of high fee active management mutual funds. And I can go on and on about the genesis of Vanguard and, you know, his story and the dramas, but I wanted to highlight two critical things here. And and he was a true outsider and a true mission-driven founder, entrepreneur, and just human being. He took, he did not take no for an answer. Um, And he was an absolute thorn in the side of incumbents in the industry and grinded his way to carving out an entire new category. Now, the reason why it's important is I don't think there is one person that deserves as much credit as someone making investing on Main Street for the individual investor better from a cost perspective and easier than Jack Bogle. I think he is the single most influential person in this And what he has done is started the massive movement of making what we do possible. Um, Now, you know, you and I are both fans of index investing and active stock picking with the right level of research involved and, and the willingness to remain invested and logical. There's no right way to do it, but the key here is that Jack Bogle believed keeping your cost structure, your cost structure low was important to maximize compounding. Um, 
Simon, do you remember when you you first maybe did some back of the envelope fees on mutual fund fee, like uh, math on mutual fund fees? Like for me, it was a light bulb moment. Oh yeah, uh, for first year engineering student Braden ten years ago, I was like, "Hell, you what? Like you what? Like <laughs> you know? Like what was that like for you?" Oh, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You don't need, um, you know, you you kind of have it in your mind. You see the number. I think it's just instinctual. You see one, two percent, or let's just say two percent uh, that comes to mind. But you see, it's you know, since you're a kid, you know that you know one is low, two is a little bit higher. But you know, they're still relatively <laughs> small numbers. Low. I think it just comes down to that, right? And then you. Let's try doing the calculation. I remember I use a compound uh, interest calculator to do it. And then I started plugging numbers and the different, you know, difference of 1%, 2% and extrapolate over 20, 30 years and not necessarily huge, huge sums of money either. And then I just saw the massive difference that it did. And that's when it really clicked for me. There are two main lessons here from Jack Bogle. Number one, counter positioning is it is an extremely powerful thing and can change the world. So counter positioning against the incumbents. And number two, going against the grain, which is what Jack Bogle did from day one in his career, can be very intimidating. But someone who's on a mission and just crazy enough to think that they can change this trillion dollar industry can. Like they're just crazy. He's just nuts enough and has just enough of a drive to make it happen. And I say world-changing type stuff here because without a doubt, I, I do believe he is one of, like, one of the single most influential people in terms of changing the lives of millions of people today and hundreds of millions in the future for Main Street investors and uh, giving them access to the things to really build wealth, have low fees, and you know, compete with what was in just an ex elite exclusive ability to invest your, your capital. Uh, so that's that's my uh, summary on Jack Bogle. He was an absolute legend. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I've read quite a bit about him, and I can't remember what it is. I'd have to look back. But I also, I think the... The way Vanguard was structured is they incentivize low fees, right? Where the typical funds, uh, people are just incentivized to make sure that they maximize those fees because that's that makes money. But I have to look back to understand exactly that was done. But I know that's how they did it. It's funny. He went then went on to really not like how Vanguard was going when he was no longer part of the organization because he thought ETFs were a load of, load of, he didn't like it. He didn't like the structure. And he thought that the original index fund was a much better structure than, uh, than ETF. And they eventually were just like, get this guy, get this old guy out of, uh, out of the building here. We're trying to make trillions in assets under management here. And it's just funny because that's in his DNA to just even in his own company, he didn't like uh, the conformity to typical capitalism when he thought that something could be done better. It's just in his DNA and even in his family's DNA for his uncle did something similar in the insurance business, going against the grain and just not taking no for an answer. So some people are just cut from a different cloth and uh, 
uh, for better or for worse, uh, I, I think uh, he was a legend. No, no, totally agree. Um, now we'll finish uh, here with a segment on Bitcoin and how to store your Bitcoin presented by our sponsor, ShakePay. Um, it's been a while since uh, I was able to do a Bitcoin segment, mostly because earnings has been kind of crazy for what it's been like over a month now we're earning season and stuff. Um, yep. So I thought, I mean, I've had the question. We have some people reach out to me, uh, reach out on our email as well. Um, it's probably the most common question I've been getting lately about Bitcoin from our listeners. And it's definitely increased since what happened with FTX, BlockFi, Celsius and others in the past year. And people just want to know, you know, what my thoughts are in terms of storing your Bitcoin and keeping that safe. It can also apply if you're into other cryptocurrencies, but for me, uh, it's mainly Bitcoin. I do have some Ethereum as well. Now you can store it on an exchange. You can store it in cold storage, or you can do it through a multi-signature. And I'll go quickly over each in terms of the pros and cons. First, exchanges and also include hot wallets here. Exchanges and a hot wallet just mean that it's connected to the internet. That's what it means. So this is probably exchanges what most people are familiar with. So whether it's our sponsor ShakePay, some other big names like Kraken, Coinbase, Binance, uh, there are pros and cons of storing your crypto on exchanges. A hot wallet, like I said, it's not necessarily an exchange. It's just that it's connected to the internet. Now the pros here for exchanges, you can easily access your money. It's easy to use. You can easily trade if that's what you want to do. It's a good option if you have small amounts of Bitcoin and there are no your customer requirements, uh, which may be a pro or a con for people. I have the same thing in the cons here for know your customer. That's what um, if you ever hear KYC, that's what it is. So know your customer funds can be yep. uh, the cons here. Funds can be frozen by the exchange or governmental ent entities. It can be hard to know if the exchange has one-for-one your assets back, especially if it's an offshore unregulated exchange, like for example, what happened with FTX, they were commingling users fund using it for their hedge fund Alameda. Um, so that's especially you know, dangerous when you're dealing with offshore exchanges. Binance is one that's uh, not regulated uh, in Canada or the U.S. And it's much easier for a hacker or unauthorized person to steal your funds if the funds are on the exchange. The next one is cold storage. So cold storage is just the opposite of hot storage. It means your Bitcoin is not connected to the internet while it is being stored. The most used devices for this type of storage is Ledger or Trezor. Uh, there are some other ones. Just make sure you do your research for the other ones. I've used Ledger, but I don't have any experience with Trezor. Another way to keep it in cold storage is you can actually write down manually your seed phrase. Um, so that's another option that people could do that's cost effective. Now the pros here, it's a good option if you have a larger amount of Bitcoin. You cannot be accessed without your device or seed phrase like I just mentioned. KYC requirements, so know your customer, can be avoided. Um, that could be a good or bad thing depending. I'm not doesn't have to necessarily be that you're trying to do anything illicit here. It's just in certain countries uh, that are not Canada, not the U.S., um, where there's potential dictatorships and things like that. This could be a massive advantage. It's not connected to the Internet. It's harder to freeze funds. You own the keys to your vault. There's no third party involved. And the cons here, 
pretty simple. If you lose your device or seed phrase, your Bitcoin is gone forever. And there is a learning curve to understand how to use these devices. So if you use it incorrectly, it could result in a permanent loss of your Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Now, the last one, um, this is the not a bad option. It's called multi-signature. It's basically the next step of cold storage, if you'd like, and probably the best option if you have significant amounts of Bitcoin. That's typically the storage that, you know, institutional level um, investors will have for their cryptocurrencies. And the way it works is multi-signature. You could say you have three keys instead of just one. So, Instead of having just one, you have your three keys. And in order to access your Bitcoin, you would need two out of three keys. So it removes the risk of potentially you losing your own key. So you would have one key in your phone, for example, one key in your ledger or Trezor device, and one key with a multi-signature provider like a CASA or Unchained Capital. There's also some um, open source options that can be quite more complex but are free. Coinbase also has a multi-signature and you can also go towards, uh, like I said, the open source options. Even if you lose your keys or one gets stolen, you can still have access to your Bitcoin as long as you access the other two keys, as long as you have access to them. But if you lose two out of three, you're screwed like the previous option. Now, the pros pretty easy here. Good option if you have large amounts of Bitcoin cannot be accessed without the required number of keys. So instead of two or three, it could be five of seven, for example. So there's different ways to structure that. KYC requirements could be avoided. Increased protection against loss of key, theft of key. Harder to freeze funds. You still own slash control your keys. And the cons, like I said, if you lose the two out of three, you can no longer access it. There are fees associated with with uh, like some providers like a CASA, for example, and there can be a learning curve, especially if uh, you use the open source option. So those are all the typical options that you can have. Um, I know we do have people that have varying amounts of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And if you only have it on an exchange, and that's what I like about ShakePay is they actually encourage people to store it into cold storage or even multi-signature. Uh, you know, you can... Basically, use the exchange a bit like a public washroom. You do your business uh, and then you go out. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I heard that before. It was kind of funny. It made me laugh. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. Um, and not what I was expecting. Um, uh, next time we bring up the segment, we're calling it the public washroom. Public washroom segment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Presented by our friends at ShakePay. Yeah. Uh, we'll lose our, uh, they're, they're going to message us and be like, um, what are you guys calling the sponsored segment? I'm like, guys, it's just the yeah. easiest way to yeah. understand the value proposition here. Uh, no, this is helpful. I mean, there's a reason people do it. There's a reason the smart people in this space are doing it. There's a reason you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a reason ShakePay is recommending you do it. And and I also like that they're honest about about that. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it could be of no fault of your own or ShakePay. What if someone, you know, access your account, they figure out what your password is and the classic uh, SMS hack where they are able to kind of get your phone number redirected to their phone. Um, I hate SMS two-factor authentication. Yeah. 
So that's something to keep. It sucks security wise and it sucks logistics wise too. Yeah. Yeah. So something to keep in mind, like the exchange may try their best to keep it safe. And I, you know, like I've never had any issues with ShakePay myself and it's, you know, it's super easy to buy Bitcoin, but you know, things can still happen that, you know, you can try to do things as well as you can. But if you have your money on there, um, there's always that risk that's there. I love the user interface, and I'm not just saying that. Oh no, it's you know, yeah, it's really sponsored. It's just stupid simple. Like you, and it's stupid simple. It's like good how every good user interface should look these days, mm-hmm. is especially on iOS and uh, fintech apps. That's the new trend. Is just like there's like nothing to be confused about, and uh, I like that. And they even like prompt you. If there's common mistakes, right? If you're sending Bitcoin, they're like, oh, make sure you're sending it to Bitcoin address. Because if not, if you're sending to Ethereum address, you will lose it forever and things like that. So I think it's it's really helpful having those reminders too. Yeah, especially for an idiot like me. Like, dude, last thing I want. See, mom, um, hopefully this is your address and you can send me this back because I just (laughs) lost all my money. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the pod, guys. Really appreciate everyone tuning in. If you have not checked out stratosphere.io, go ahead and do that. We just updated a bunch of stuff, uh, added some improvements to the industry comparisons. So it looks beautiful and it auto saves all your work now across the entire application. So if you're all, if you're signed in and you're doing work and you're making this cute little screener or uh, industry comparisons, you know, comparing stock A versus stock B, it auto saves your work. So next time you go on the, on the app, it's, you don't have to remake it. You don't have to worry about closing the tab. It's just auto saves and all those features are completely free. So go ahead and check that out. If you do want more data, more features, then you can get a, a the essentials plan. You can get uh, 15% off with code TCI. So go to stratosphere.io. Sign up to the Essentials Plan. Use code TCI for the podcast listeners. Get 15% off. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions. 